When looking at Parshas Kisetse from a global view, one cannot ignore the many seemingly unpleasant mitzvos and law topics that appear there. The Parsha begins with the laws of the Eishas Yifas Toar, literally the woman of beautiful appearance. As per this law, Hashem actually allows the Jewish soldiers at war who desire these beautiful Gentile female captives to marry them, provided that they follow the procedure prescribed in the opening psukim of our Parsha, that she has to be made to shave her head bald, she has to let her nails grow out, she has to be stripped of her clothes of captivity, and remain in a state of mourning. As astonishing as it is that the Torah would authorize such a marriage, Rashi explains that lo dibra Torah ela kneged Sahara that the Torah was only speaking in correspondence to the Yetzirah. Now what exactly does that mean? Rashi elaborates that in other words, that if Hashem were not to grant this leeway to the soldier's evil inclination and authorize this marriage, the soldier would nonetheless embrace his temptation and live with this woman, Be'isr, in a prohibited and lawless fashion. Given the above, one cannot deny that it seems Kind of strange that, according to the heightened standards and ideals of Torah law, where the presumed goal is to perfect one's soul, to cleave to Hashem at his kisei hakavod, that there could exist a law authorizing such a distasteful, impulsive, self-serving, and superficial relationship. But not only is the law of Ifas Torah not spiritually appealing, but it's apparently a recipe for disaster, because right after the passage of Yifas Toar, the Torah describes yet another unideal situation, which gives rise to the law of the man who has two wives, one the Ahuva, the beloved wife, and the other the Snua, the hated wife. Now, even given the fact that the people were living in an age where polygamy was acceptable, it's quite appalling that one would have a wife that he plainly hates, at least enough for the Torah to call the woman hated. How might such a sad marriage have happened? Rashi suggests that if one were to ultimately marry the Afas Torah, he would eventually come to hate her. And this is where the laws of the loved wife versus the hated wife become quite relevant. Because at such a point, the Torah warns that if this man's firstborn were indeed born to him from his hated wife, he must nonetheless recognize that son as the firstborn and ascribe to him all the rights entitled to the firstborn, regardless of his relationship with that child's mother. And granted, that that is the law in such a situation, but how could the Torah have allowed such a circumstance to unfold in the first place? Assuming that the Torah has any control or say in the matter, It is a law book, after all. And had the Torah not apparently given such leeway for one's romantic fantasies, this messy marriage would have never been created. This is not to disregard the fact that there is a real concern that the soldier would sin with the Gentile woman, whether or not she would be permitted to him. But since when is that a basis to suspend what would apparently otherwise be a basic halacha? It's not like we lift prohibitions against eating non-kosher or working on Shabbos, or allowing any other illicit relationships out of the fear that one's going to violate them anyway. Yet the Torah seems to allow this largely unideal circumstance to play itself out just because man can't help himself. Granted, the Torah never recommended marrying the Afas Torah, but why would the Torah lower its ideal seemingly and give man the go-ahead in the first place? 
And matters only get worse in the next law topic because the same measure which we cited from Rashi points out that if one has a beloved wife and a hated wife, he is bound to bear a ben sorera a wayward and rebellious son, which the Torah discusses in that next passage. In this ben sorera he is hopelessly gluttonous and he's defiant individual, and he's sentenced to stoning in court. And our image plainly suggests that he could quite possibly be the culmination of this apparently broken family. With all of the above in mind, it seems that the Torah has permitted man to doom himself and others. In other words, Hashem's pristine code of law essentially dictates that one may satisfy his desires if he must and marry the Gentile woman he captured in war and then simply warns what might just end up happening with a hated wife who might just give birth to a son who will grow disturbed and rebellious to the point that he will have to be killed in the court. The Torah just avails one to this option. How could the Torah have permitted this disaster in the making? Even if the progression described in this Midrash is not necessarily literal or even likely, no one could call this truly desirable or spiritually pleasing. It's not what we would call a Torah ideal if we can call it anything. Why then would the Torah grant the possibility for such a situation? Now, returning to that sky view of Parsha's Kiseitse, we noted that throughout many of the laws in Kiseitse, there seems to be this running theme of ill-fated, unideal situations. And in fact, it does not even end with the Ben Sarer Amora. Because if we look forward in Parsha's Kiseitse, we're going to see that the Torah proceeds to describe the rules of hanging the body of a man who was executed in court. Later, the Chumash conveys the laws of administering lashes for an individual who transgresses even lighter commandments. Parshas Kisetze also describes the law of Motzi Shamra, which revolves around yet another man who hates his wife after one night of marriage, and he tries to slander her in court. And these laws are only followed by the description of what would be had this woman actually been unfaithful during her period of halachic betrothal, how she is to be stoned to death. These mitzvos segue into the laws relating to adultery, seduction, and or rape of a betrothed woman. Kisaitse also talks about the laws of prostitution and the status of the money that was transferred as the harlot's wage. The unfortunate situation of divorce also comes up in our Parsha, with the parallel situation of Chalitza, which is a ritual that we may be familiar with that one undergoes if his married brother dies childless and he refuses to consummate Yibam with the widow to perpetuate his brother's legacy. What all of these situations have in common is that none of them are particularly pleasant or ideal. In fact, they're all rather tragic. But while they are, unfortunately, sad situations, the fact is that they are often enough the reality. Indeed, we don't have the luxury of living in a perfect and ideal world. We live in a world where people are flawed and where people either make unfortunate decisions or are just subject to unfortunate circumstances. Indeed, one's ill fate is not always one's own fault as people often find themselves in undesirable and sometimes even bitter marriages or other such circumstances that are just beyond their control. And children of such homes can veer from the proper path. Moreover, in this world, people suffer sometimes from rape or untimely deaths. And there are people who have to be punished in court. And there are people who engage in znus or harlotry. In Rechmanot's land, there are even marriages that have to end. 
Okay, teaches us that in each of these real-life situations, the Torah has a code of law, a way for us to act appropriately moving forward, even in those situations. Even at the beginning of the parsha, which discusses the whole concept of going out to war, particularly a melchamas rishos, an optional war, which did not absolutely have to happen. Indeed, war is not the most ideal situation, and yet even there the Torah comes to tell us that in reality, since war does happen, there is an appropriate way to deal with such a situation should it occur. And in this vein, the Torah is not merely a book about lofty ideals for the perfect utopian and non-existent world. At large, Ratzon Hashem, the will of Hashem, is not merely a concern for flawless individuals situated in the best-case scenario. On the contrary, the Torah recognizes the reality that not all negative situations are completely avoidable. We don't always have the luxury of the lechatchila situation. Sometimes we need to rely on B'di'evit, where even there, Ratzon Hashem has an opinion. Sometimes one's temptations, the Torah admits, can get the best of him. And even there, when perhaps the normal human could not control himself, there are still appropriate measures to be exacted. Even when the Torah has to give us permission, such as in the case of Yifas Toar, it can certainly happen. And in this unideal and largely problematic situation, where one might have to give in, yet, even there, one has to be aware of the halachos and know how to act even once he's succumbed. Moreover, one has to know the relevant laws in all situations. You have to be prepared for the scenario of chas v'shalom a hated wife and take the precautions properly to guide all of one's children on the correct path according to their needs so that we can avoid the tragic case of the Ben Sarah Amora. And in the end, the Torah urges us, ki When you go out to war against the enemy, you go out into the real world against the unfortunate but real-life situations, sometimes we will win the battles, but sometimes we will not. Sometimes we'll be able to avoid the unpleasant scenarios, and many times we won't. But regardless, there's a right and wrong way to deal with all situations, ideal or unideal. And if the situation worsens, even in the darkest of places, there is still always a Ratzon Hashem, an appropriate way to respond to that situation. And the Torah, our manual to life, all of life, is designed to give us counsel for each of these situations, reminding us that it's never too late to do what is appropriate and to fulfill the Ratzon Hashem.